Welcome to the Making Connections News edition of Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. February 26th was the 51st anniversary of the Buffalo Creek Flood, a coal mining disaster that killed 125 people and left 4,000 homeless in this Logan County, West Virginia community. This program features Buffalo Creek Revisited, a 1985 documentary that I produced that looks at the impact of the disaster 10 years after the flood. A story that is particularly relevant as many question how or if Eastern Kentucky will recover after the devastating floods of July 2022. That is followed by a powerful remembrance of the disaster from the 50th anniversary event held at Mann High School at the mouth of Buffalo Creek. On February the 26, 1972, a coal waste dam collapsed at the head of a crowded hollow in southern West Virginia. In the ensuing flood, 125 people were killed. Most of the 16 small mining communities along Buffalo Creek were demolished, and 4,000 people were left homeless. The Pittston Company, owners of the dam, denied responsibility for the disaster, claiming it was an act of God. Several years later, the Piston Company settled a number of lawsuits out of court, although they never accepted responsibility. This film looks at the efforts to rebuild the Buffalo Creek oh, community in the years after the disaster. I've not wrote anything about the flood after this. You know, I think it says it all, pretty much. I don't know if I'll write anything else about the flood or not, you know. <clears throat> It's Friday late on the summer side of this West Virginia town, wishing it was another West Virginia town, maybe on some other West Virginia riverbank. Riverbank, beautiful as autumn in your mind. Here in this $75 room, I remember things and more things. I've forgotten nothing. My thoughts are as clear as the empty vodka bottle on my windowsill. I remember a dusty afternoon lunch in the churchyard 10 years ago. Every detail as close as it can be to me. My thoughts run ragged, one right after another, like seconds and minutes that turn into hours and days, thoughts and thoughts that turn into nightmares. The point in your life where thoughts take the place of time passing. That old license plate on the wall calls out a past best forgotten, and I've forgotten now some names of those I knew, some faces of misplaced people. Those people are lost to me, and I've forgotten a Friday night rain and a Saturday morning pain. No particular Saturday morning. I said I'd forgotten that. I can't remember the dead dogs I pulled out of the mud in houses, wishing and hoping and good God above praying it wasn't some child still warm yet stiff from the mud. I said I can't remember the watermarks on houses condemned and the watermarks on people condemned and the watermarks zigzagging the mountainsides for 10 miles down the holler. I've forgotten the story of poor Ms. Withrow buried to the neck for hours and saying a prayer thanking the good Lord she had survived, telling the sick and workers not to worry. She was warm. God had taken care of her while she waited. And I've forgotten the look in Mr. Johnson's eyes on that Saturday morning, the way he stared at me laying down in that rubble like that, genitals torn completely off his naked, tormented body. It showed in his eyes when I shook him, asking for an answer. I swear it did. I swear, damn it, I can't forget. Not this late at night. A church service in Laredo on Buffalo Creek for the 10th anniversary. Amazing grace. 
two pots of roses. And we'd like to present a rose to each of you that is representing your families. In remembrance of. Mike King, Robert A. Murray, Thomas Venator, Leonard E. Butcher, Grady Michael Wall, Frank Lee Workman Sr., Kimberly K. Bailey, Augusta Miller, Sylvia Albright, Mary B. Markham, Goldie Marie Sibbles, Alicia Dempsey, Donetta Lynn Lester, Thelma Dillon, Wendell Dallas Osborne, Edith Blankenship, and Lillian Carter. Anita Owen Smith, Herbert Peters, Unidentified, Diana McCoy, Kimberly McCoy, Harold Dillon, Larry Wall, Kathy Wall. May Gerald, Henrietta Owens, Gladys Staten. Ruth Morris, survivor from Lundale, West Virginia. Our children was raised together. They, they wasn't like neighbors, they was family. Um, I traveled over this old holler many a day with maybe two families in, in my car to the doctor. Um, my next door neighbor would take my carburetor and put it on his car. I'd take his cars off and put it on mine. That's the kind of neighbors we was. We, uh, we didn't run and knock on the door and say, can I do? We went and opened the door and walked in and did do. We, we just worked together. We took, I guess you could say we took care of one another. We joined everything. We belonged to the PTA, the Scouts, Cub Scouts, uh, all communities of ours, churches and stuff like that. And every morning to us was a sunny morning, a smile, a good morning, hi, how are you? That meant so much to us. We don't get that no more. We don't see it no more. It, it's a loss. It is, you know, a smile is worth a million dollars sometimes. And we don't get that no more. We get vacant stares, we get frowns, we get worries. Um, it'll never have another homey atmosphere. That's the only thing I can tell you, that really, that to define it, it, it was home. Psychologist Dr. June Church. I was one of the few psychologists that was available during the Buffalo Creek disaster in 1972. Some of the uh, emotional problems and psychophysiological problems were uh, headaches, some colitis, different types of stress reactions. There was uh, an increase in uh, alcohol consumption the families become more disruptive within themselves, more arguments. Uh, there was an increase in accidents, uh, people just running off the road, for instance. There was an ex extensive amount of depression, uh, guilt, and anxiety. Gail Ambergy. I don't know. I, I was real confused for a long time, for years and years after the flood. I couldn't. I couldn't really zone in on what was happening. You know, I knew people was dead, and dogs were dead, and people, you know, was out of homes and stuff. I, I was real busy. You know, everybody pitched in, and you know, I didn't really have time to think about what was going on. Ken Heckler, West Virginia Congressman from 1959 to 1977. 
The reaction was good so far as the cleanup and rescue effort, recovering of bodies, and bulldozing some of the debris out of the way. The National Guard and the Army Corps of Engineers did a fairly good and thorough job on that. But very little was done to deal with the human problems which this terrible disaster had caused among thousands of people throughout the valley. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, sent in some trailers very quickly and there was an immediate problem about where to put these trailers. The coal companies, of course, didn't want to put on land that they hoped to be able to mine. And when HUD herded people into some 13 trailer camps, it was done in, in a, a very arbitrary manner. It broke up communities. People had been ripped up by the roots and forced into what were almost concentration camps. Ruth Morris. I live at the Ackerville Trailer Park. They call it the Gestapo. Uh, the one at Green Valley, they called it Little Peyton Place. Uh, they never could keep track of their children. People was distrustful. They see no peace, no rest. They put strangers in them head trailers among our people that we didn't know. It was frightful. And you'd hear mothers cry and worry and wonder when they're going to get to go back on their properties. You see, that wasn't home to them. And they couldn't look into the future. They didn't have nothing to look to. Dr. June Church. Even though we had strongly suggested on the relocation to keep the natural groupings together as much as possible, but apparently uh, they were just haphazardly placed. And the, the people who had lived together for years and their, their fathers and forefathers had all lived closely together uh, were disbanded, broken up. They were put next to strangers. They had no one that they could really risk themselves with and to talk with, to share the common feelings, and they felt like they were alone in the world. And then, unfortunately, it'll take, in my opinion again, probably uh, two generations for them really to resolve all the anxiety that has lingered on. Ruth Morris. Uh, that used to be a trailer car. But you can see them had trailers till you die. This is Lorraine to Lundell. Lundell lost everything in Laredo. Everything here is new. They ain't nothing, wasn't nothing. It's just like somebody took a magic wand and wiped it off. That This whole bottom was wiped out. This is the main road. It went just exactly right here. Did it take, like, being so wide, did it take a whole row of houses? It took three rows. There was three rows of houses in here. See these alleys through here? Yeah. There was an alley in front of every house. Now, my one of my sons lives right there. This is my property, Mimi. 
Uh-huh. That's where, uh, and I got that playground put in there after the dam broke. All this is in here now. See, that business all wiped out. See here? Yeah, my daddy's property set right there. That was daddy's tree right there. My brother was washed off his property right there where you see that log land. Now, this was a big community. See the highway going right through there? Yeah. Now, let me show you. Now, Ladybug, you can just get your little rear end off. There was homes here, three rows of them. One, two, three, uh -huh. went to our bank. Now, this is the property I was telling you about that the highway department bought for the highway. And the people went to buy it back, and they said they couldn't sell it to them. Well, what in the name of God's going on here? Howdy. Guess you know what I'm doing, don't you? I'm checking out your property for you. I'm, I'm telling him about it now. She's one of the ones they turned down. That's Miss Webb. Turned down for what? She wanted her property back right down there, and they wouldn't let her have it. Told her that it wasn't for sale, and they turned around and sold another man, and she had to buy below me. Now, all this property in here was full of houses. But still yet, they would not let us come back. Ken Heckler. The State Highway Department was insisting that it needed to have time to engineer and plan out the rights away for a superhighway. And I got a lot of calls from individuals who wanted to go back into the area where they had had their homes. They were told by the state highway people, you can't go there because there's no water and sewage there, and we need that land for the superhighway. The emphasis kept being placed on the priority of the highway, which to them seemed to be far more important than getting people back into their homes. Carl Bradford, former director of the Governor's Office of Federal-State Relations. We called together all of the state and federal agencies that we felt might have some input uh, redeveloping the area and initiated a planning process which resulted in this document, the Buffalo Valley Redevelopment Plan. So our initial approach was try to concentrate the redevelopment in what we're then calling three nodes, which you'll hear quite a bit about the node concept down there even yet. But essentially what uh, was done was looked for the area where the most total destruction had occurred so the land was basically available, and concentrate amenities in these areas and encourage people to rebuild and resettle in that area. The reconstruction of the road was included as part of the redevelopment plan, along with water and sewer systems, health services, recreation, and other components of restoring community life. Neighbors and local organizers discussed disaster recovery efforts at the Buffalo Creek home of Jack and Virgie Vernatter. Here's Myra Amberge. 
when you come down to the nitty-gritty of the people really didn't ask for anything. The Just government came the in here and telling them what they were going to do. Well, that's because they had expectations then, and then they wanted it. Journalist Beth Spence. I don't know whether, you know, what happened, whether funding wasn't available or what, but the water and sewage system was completed in 1977 instead of September 1972. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The road took a long time to complete, and during that time, people were really in limbo about going back to their to their homes, to their to their lots to rebuild because they didn't know whether it was going to be taken for this or that or the other. A lot of the problems is just nobody ever made an attempt to keep them. Robert Wise, former UMWA lawyer and congressman. And I don't think people wanted the world, but it's when you come in and you say there will be 750 homes, uh, uh, there will be immediate recreation, there's going to be a water and sewer system, and then it's not coming. That pile on top That's of right. an already uh, traumatic event, such as a Really, I think that a whole lot of the dishonesty that went on in this creek was due to having broken promises. And uh, it turned the people's attitude. It turned their attitude, you know, they, uh, completely around. It, it was really rough. People's not the same yet. No, no and I, they'll really never be the same. Used to be you'd whip through this. These camps here. Survivor Jack Fernandez. And you stop at the community, first thing you know, there's 25 or 30 around you. Everybody yeah, talking to one another. You go up through there now, and you stop your car, ain't nobody going to come to your car to see what you want. Well, in fact, you, in fact, you debate on whether to stop close to their fence or not. Well, that's true. Carl Bradford. There, there's no question that uh, the building of the highway, uh, many things affected a person's options in terms of returning to their initial piece of land. In fact, uh, looking at retrospect and how the resettlement occurred, uh, there weren't that many people really returned to their original piece of land. If everything had gone, uh, you know, according to initial perceptions and optimum projections, we would have tried to create a suburban quality of life in, in nodules in Buffalo Valley. Uh, I don't think anybody really expected that to happen, but if you don't set your goals high, you, you end up much lower than you're, you're shooting for. Uh, I think what we w were shooting for realistically was, you know, uh, safe, decent, sanitary living conditions in the valley where People had some choice to choose the type of dwelling they want, the lifestyle they uh, could want to accommodate, and uh, have some degree of protection in doing that. Uh, I don't think we got quite to there. Survivor Jack Fernet. Uh, I'll go back just a little bit further than flood. I, I, I'll go back, uh, I'll say, 15 years ago. If either one of you all would have told me that I couldn't have got anything from my state or my government would have lied to me, you'd have had me to fight. Mm -hmm. Right now, brother, she's up in limbo. I say they'll all lie to you. Every one of them will give you a, a nice talk and they'll put a picture on there that, by God, you can almost see it in the dark. <laughs> but it's not there, folks. Journalist Beth Spence. The thing that frustrates me about Buffalo Creek is I come up here today and I see not the communities that I knew as a child, but sort of scattered homes, um, 
a loss of community. People faced death of, of friends and relatives, mm -hmm. but when also everything that was once familiar to them is also gone, the trauma is double. Mm -hmm. And I think what Buffalo Creek stands as a symbol of how important communities are. Ruth Morris, survivor from Lundale, West Virginia. Where are we now? Now that was Saunders Camp right there where you see all that stock pile. What kind of place was it? Oh, it was beautiful. It was the most modernest little community you ever looked at. Oh, there's about 35 families lived in there. That was a whole complete community. One of the prettiest little places you ever seen. Little modern homes. Everybody was so happy there. And the big white church set right yonder in that dip. Piston wouldn't let them come back on it. And the people went to federal court and made them buy them some property down at Lundale. They use it now to stock. They didn't want nobody back. Coal companies didn't want none of us back. They went right on building this. They didn't offer to make them people a way to live. They had this built before they ever made provisions for them people. Hey, God, Mimi, I don't know. The governor let them out with it. That's all I can tell you. Here's where the dam broke. They keep check on it, see how they drain it now. And, uh, well, they was all back to work in five days if you'll just read your papers. Ken Heckler. Because of the fact that uh, almost three quarters of the land in Logan County is owned by a very few coal companies, lumber companies, oil and utility uh, empires. It's very, very difficult for the average individual to find a place to live. Virtually all of the level land is being reserved by those companies that hope to, to uh, extract the mineral resources. After Buffalo Creek, you had a combination not only of the state highway department saying, hey, we want all this land and uh, many feet on either side for a highway. But you had the coal companies vetoing the use of land to get people back into their homes. And this is a perennial problem in an area that is dominated by a small number of industries the way Logan County is. It's a problem not only in Buffalo Creek, it's a problem throughout the county where if you want to resettle people that have been on Buffalo Creek, you can't find the land elsewhere. And there have been cases of whole communities that have been obliterated because of the need for a new coal tipple or preparation plant. Carl Bradford. Early on in the going, we suggested to the people of the valley that one of the solutions available to them in trying to get control of their destiny was to pursue incorporation. Uh, the people did start to push for incorporation and pursued as uh, far as they could and ultimately weren't successful. Ruth Morris. The Logan County Courthouse blocked us on 
incorporation for the simple reason was we wouldn't agree for the coal companies to be set outside of the taxes. And if we paid taxes, we felt like they were to pay taxes. has great power over the politics of West Virginia. And of course, property taxes are necessary in order to sustain the school system and to build the necessary water systems or recreation areas. Yet in Logan County, when you have 10 of the biggest companies controlling 60% of the land and only paying 26% of the property taxes. Well, that's outrageous. It's no wonder that you have this syndrome of low property taxes, bad schools, bad roads, and poor people. Robert Wise. You've got a railroad train 30 feet from this living room that runs out every day loaded with coal, going to Boston, Chicago, and whatnot. And then, like you say, where, is the, where are the fire trucks? Where are the school buildings? Where are the recreation centers? You had to raise that money but for out of the people who live here. Well, that's fine, but why didn't those corporate citizens also contribute? There's a coal company that caused this flood. It's coal companies that own this valley. It's coal companies that are going to cause another flood right. if we don't change some of those patterns. Well, they make their money and they'll move out. You see, their headquarters found out, I think it's in New York. Uh, their officials has uh, homes in Florida and California and places like that. Once they're through, they move out, you see. They leave their debris, their mess, their junk. They don't care about us anymore. So if I put all that money in there, they're going to leave. Survivor Virgie Burnett. How many of their wives have been here since how we live? How many of the Owners, uh, well, they own stock in the coal countries. How many have been to our area and looked it over? They don't know how we live. How many of their they children hear. have to go to school in our schools? That's and how right. many of them have to die in our hospitals That's because right. we don't have adequate health care? Not right. very many of them. And sometimes we have to break some of that pattern somehow. So I think Buffalo Creek is, is symbolic and, and represents a good deal of the problems in this state and I think several of the Appalachian states. The domination of the coal companies and the land that they owned is really one of the keys to why Buffalo Creek in uh, this period, 10 years after, has not really fully recovered. It's still under the domination and thumb of the coal companies.
there are more people than there are uh, exploiters. Therefore, there ought to be an opportunity to organize the people to insist that they be given treatment as human beings instead of mere vassals in a, a fiefdom. Gail Amber, from the conversations I've had with people, you know, they just tell me, look, it's over, forget about it. But they're crazy. You know, when you forget about it, that's when you're crazy. You know, if you, if you think about it every day, and it, I don't know, as long as it stays with me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sane. You have been listening to Buffalo Creek Revisited, a documentary film I directed that is available from Apple Shop. On the 50th anniversary of the disaster, the Mann High School Auditorium was filled with survivors and family gathered for a memorial. Here are excerpts from the event. Recently retired educator Billy Jack Dickerson, who taught at Mann High School, has been a leader in organizing these memorials for many years. He spoke movingly about his experience and the importance of remembering. Let me first welcome you folks to this event. Tough day for some of us. Tough years for a lot of us. I woke up this morning and uh, I thought, how in the world has it been 50 years? How am I 60? I was 10. How am I 60? How did this happen? On multiple levels, how did this happen? And it never fails. Over the years, I've looked out over thousands of students who sat in those very seats that you're sitting in right now. And the very same emotions well up inside of me. So this morning, as I was lying in bed, my wife asked me, she said, are you okay? Because I think she could feel that I was already going through that emotional ditch that I hate to get in this time of year and other times. And what was happening was I was taking a mental journey. And I had, in my mind, I had crossed Sorry. I had crossed the bridge at Lower London. And I started to drive in my mind up through that community. And I could remember the houses. And the families. And the friends. And neighbors and uh, it's too much to bear at times again I apologize but, uh, I don't know what else to do 
you know, I, I taught here for 30 years. I retired in uh, August last year. And I taught science. And I taught environmental science as part of my duties. Oddly enough, wound up with a class of 16 girls. <laughs> it was kind of like being at my house. Uh, on a much smaller scale. But anyway, 16 girls, and we supposedly were assigned students by some randomization um, program that was supposed to select students and put them into classrooms so that you wouldn't have the stereotypical classroom. It would be a very heterogeneous classroom with students from all different types of backgrounds and all those different types of things. But lo and behold, 16 girls. I don't know if that really has any significance, but it was what it was, to kind of change the phrase, it is what it is. That's the way it was. And teaching environmental science, you know, environmental science, when I, when I came through school, there was no such thing as a specific environmental science class. It didn't exist. Environmental science became a thing as more and more people started to recognize that through the actions of man, we were wrecking the environment and there needed to be some more study done to try and prevent us destroying the earth. So it became more and more, or moved more and more to the forefront. So here I am in the middle of teaching an environmental science course, which is really rooted in all of your three basic sciences, the biology, the chemistry, and the physics. And we made sure that leading into the heart of the subject, we had a good firm foundation in all three of those aspects. And eventually, we move into the natural disasters of the world, the tsunamis, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the, the floods. And that became my pathway to talk about Buffalo Creek, something that was um, for lack of a better phrase, near and dear to my heart. I'm a survivor. I was there. I saw it with these eyes. I lived it. And I thought, once we started talking about that, here's what I found. I had 16 young ladies, seniors in high school, that had no idea what I was talking about. Shocked. I was absolutely shocked. And I thought, this can't happen. These young ladies are one generation removed. How in the world have we slipped up and, and let this? And, and Mike Pollard, and you know, there's all kinds of forms of the phrase, it all, it all means the same thing. And, and the, the phrase that says history, you know, not told is destined to be repeated. How in the world have we allowed 16 young ladies who are from this area to not know about one of the most tragic events in the history of this town, this state, this country, the world? How did it happen? So we set out, we, the collective, faculty, we set out to fix the problem. And 
for years and years and years. I don't even know how many. I've stood before people sitting in those very chairs and kind of gave them my perspective, which is not necessarily just my perspective, but it's, again, through my perception of the events that led up to and, and everything else, so that no one, under the sound of our voice and the seeing of the displays and all of the different type of stimuli that can exist to come into a person's brain, never forget. Never forget that 125 people died needlessly. And some of them were my family. And many of them were my neighbors. I lived in Lundell. 56 of the 125 died in Lundell, folks. 56. Think about that for a moment. Young men and women, you guys that are still in school, I hope and pray that never, ever, that you have to come to this school. And I know that many of you are seniors and, and on your way out the door. But I hope and pray that in your time remaining at Mann High School or wherever you may attend school, that you never have to go back into a classroom and see those empty seats. Because we did. We did. I was in the fifth grade. I can, I can tell you, I was in the fifth grade in Miss Merritt's room. And, you know, that we had been out of school because of all the flooding and everything that was going on. And, and you know, oddly enough, here we are on a Saturday, like that Saturday. I went back to fifth grade one day, one day, to Amherstdale grade school where I had gone all those previous years. And I can remember sitting back down in that classroom and looking over beside me. And James Willie Wall wasn't there anymore. And down the hall where April Ellen White ought to have been, she wasn't there anymore. And the list goes on and on. And that's a little hard to take for a 10-year-old. And it's never left me. I hope and pray to God, and I know we all have to experience death, and we all experience tragedy in our lives, but young folks, listen to me. Life is precious. Life is precious, and it's short. I don't know how I got to be 60. It just seems like just the other day I was sitting here, one of you guys. I came here in the fall of 1976 and graduated in the fall or in the spring of 1979. I was here. I lived it. And all of that to talk about, 
You know, my part is supposed to be the historical perspective. That is the history from my perspective. And I know you have your story to tell, so let me say this to you, please. Let me, let me urge you, let me beg you. First, let me ask you a question. How many of you are survivors? Turn around and look, folks. Hold them up high, folks. You ought to be proud. Hold them up high. Man, it's good to see you all. It's good to see you. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. It's good to see you. I haven't seen some of you in a long time. And I appreciate the effort that you made today to come out here and be with me, with us, with your fellow survivors and those folks who are just interested enough to be here. You had friends, you had family, just for whatever reason, you're here, you're here. There will never be a gathering like this again in the history of time. It'll never happen again. I used to tell kids, I would speak at graduation and I would always tell them, especially at graduation practice, I'd say, look around folks, take all this in, smell the smells, see the sights, hear the sounds, it'll never, ever be like this again. Understand that. And this is the same setting, folks. Some of us may not see, live to see the light of day tomorrow. It's just the way that it is. It's life. It's harsh. It's tough sometimes. And I look back and I see folks that I stood on the same hill. And let me back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. Our house at Lundell, to, to kind of put it in perspective, and I had hoped that the uh, disc was going to play, and I don't know that it's going to and it, and it doesn't matter I, I, I've done this so much I mean what I wanted to do was show you some pictures and kind of narrate those pictures and if it works it works if it don't so be it we've had all kinds of technical difficulties but at the end of the day at the end of the day we will have gathered together and we will pay tribute to one another and those folks that lost their lives whose lives were changed forever So we lived just on the alley below old Lundell grade school, and I know some of you know where that was, past tense was. And when I was just a, an infant, Lundell school was still operational. And the reason that I know that is there are pictures of my parents holding me out in the alley. We didn't have streets. We had old red dog alleys and God knows whatever else, whatever 
uh, Amherst or whichever coal company could dream up and Jimmy Chandler would come down with a, a grader every now and again and grade it down to the point that you might be able to drive over it and I can tell you from experience if you ran and fell on it as a kid you would wind up with stitches I speak from experience that stuff is sharp and uh, fell one time just as a side story and cut my eye down there's a scar under these uh, John L. Lewis is what my mother used to call them eyebrows that I have. And uh, there's a scar under there that uh, it took uh, 10 yards of cat gut to sew up from, from falling on a red dog alley uh, right there in Lundell. But our house faced up the creek. Barb Brunny's house faced down the creek. Our houses were so close together, you could throw a rock with not much of a toss and, you know, it was back, back door to back door. And on the morning of the Buffalo Creek disaster, flood, whatever term you like, we were uh, sitting there like many young kids watching cartoons. Cartoons were a treat in those days they were not on 24 7 there was no such thing as a nickelodeon and i and my kids are so old you know one of mine's sitting there holding my granddaughter and uh, she's 30 so i don't know with a cartoon uh protocol anymore coco melon on my phone you know that's, that's what i know now uh, but we were watching cartoons still in our pajamas and uh Lights flickered, and you've heard this similar story told time and time again because it happened for so many people. The lights flickered, and I guess probably one of the things that saved us was the fact that our house did face upstream. So we were able to look, we, I'm saying the collective, but primarily my mother, looking out the front windows and seeing the creek itself just rumbling higher than it's ever rumbled before. And all this debris, and you can read in any interview that I've ever given, because I can still hear, hear the words of my mother saying, boys, I have two other brothers. One was seven at the time, and my youngest brother, Jackie, was uh, 13 months old. But she was talking to me and Darren, and said, boys, get your shoes on. Something's going on. You lived in those old coal company houses and one of the things that you always did was keep a pair of shoes by the door because you never knew when one of the things, they were a fire waiting to happen. So you kept shoes by the door. Unfortunately, I didn't have any there. But my mother had a pair of, ladies, some of you are old enough and it's okay, to remember gold LeMay house shoes. Very thin-soled. I wore those bad boys out proudly. That's what I wore out, out of the flood. Kind of looked like elf shoes, little pointy-toed deals. They didn't match my flannel pajamas at all, but that's what I had. And I'll never forget, as we walked out the front door in a hurry, we looked up, and again, for those of you that remember, Upper Lundell and Lower Lundell was kind of divided by the Amherst offices, the post office, and the store. And then that big row of hedges there. You all remember? And that's where it was when we cleared the front gate. 
was at that row of hedges. And I'll never forget going across, going right-handed toward the railroad tracks and getting to the first set of tracks. There were three. Getting to the first set of tracks and it's getting closer. And the leading edge is already coming. So by the time we go over the hump of the first set of tracks, we're waiting water. And we go over the second set and we're waiting more water. And we get past the third set of tracks and there were men standing there. Maybe some of you men were standing there helping my mother as she reached my brother, 13 months old, up the hill. Not, not a very big hill at all, probably as high as this wainscoting here at its maximum height. And as soon as we got up to that elevation, we turned around and our garage was already gone. And we climb a little higher and we turn around and I can still see this image of our house just tilting backwards and going away. Everything we owned, everything we thought about, everything, all in one motion, changed forever. And I still see that 50 years later. It'll forever be burned into my brain. And the sounds of my mother and the sounds and the, again, take it all in. And I was forced to. I asked you to, you guys to do that. I asked you to use your senses to embed those things in your brain. And I had to do it. Not voluntarily. Was forced to do it. And we stood there, huddled together on that hillside. Where are you at, Eddie? Any of you that know where Eddie used to live? You live there now? That's, that's where we stood. That's where my dad gardened. That's where I picked nine billion rocks out of that garden as a kid. My dad thought it was a pastime. Like I didn't have anything else to do. Couldn't ride my bike or have any fun. Let's go pick rocks out of the garden, son. I could go on and on. No, I didn't, I didn't get them. I guarantee you I didn't get them, Eddie. Oh, God, no. Good Lord. But that's where we stood and watched our life go away and change forever. I know a few of you were standing there with us. How many? We stood right there. I see those hands. And we stood there having no idea whether anybody else on the planet was alive because we didn't know what happened. Had a, had a somewhat of a clue. And miraculously, my dad, and this I'll use the language of the day, was a car dropper at Amherst number two. And he literally ran from Dingus Hall along different tram roads and things until he could get down to where we were. God, my dad is 83 now. In 
is not long for this earth. But he ran like a wild man. And when he got to us, he fell on his knees. I had to see my dad cry very many times. He cried like a baby because we'd made it. We had survived it. And we started thinking about the rest of our family. Oddly enough, my grandparents lived side by side. Rather convenient. Don't know how it really happened, but it did. My grandparents lived side by side at Lundell. And this morning, one of the first images that I saw was put out by Golden Seal. And there was a picture of Upper Lundell and a row of coal cars, empty coal cars sitting there, or my grandparents wouldn't have made it because everything to the left of those coal cars was gone. It's nothing but a black slate of nothing. Everything to the right, pretty much the way it was moments before. And I started telling my wife, I said, here's the the alley that goes over to Sue and Buzz's house. And here's the turn at Harold Stacy's house. Joe and Claude Curry lived in the next house. And what some of you folks who are a little bit younger than me remember as Curry's store, Curry's cold carryout or whatever name that it had at the time, it was first our Boy Scout hall that we built. Just young guys in the, in the Boy Scouts. And adjacent to that was my grandmother Adkins, my mom's mom, who was born in 1900. And adjacent to that, Charlie and Geneva Dickerson, my grandparents. You know anybody with that name, Mary? Yeah, I thought you might. It's my Aunt Mary, my dad's sister who came all the way from Ohio to be here today. Because it's important to them, folks, just like you. And I could go on, the Burchetts and so on and, and so on, you know, right on up the, the road there, and I could see those houses and that image was in my mind and I still remember that from 10 years old. And my wife asked me, she goes, I, or she said, I don't know how you remember all that. I go, I don't either. I don't know, but I do. Whether that's fortunate or unfortunate, it is what it is. So guys, I'm not going to keep you much more today. I could, listen, I'll, I'll say this and I'll close. And the electronics, who cares, you know? <laughs> I wasn't raised with those electronics and, you know, short of uh, me needing to be in contact somewhat with the outside world, I could really like to go back to a simpler time. Create a lot of aggravation and confusion and strife and other things, but here we are in this day and age and it is a part of our lives. 
just like that was a part of our lives. I sit and I think, and this is kind of a twofold thing, and again, I'll close. I sit and I think, who would I have been? Who would I have been? Would I have been this guy that you see standing in front of you today? I don't know. My location changed. My friends changed. My school changed. My everything changed, and clearly, so did I. Who would I have been? Hard telling. Hard telling. But this is who I am now. I'm this guy. And I, to kind of bring things, you know, I, I learned back taking, uh, I guess we just call it speech class, you know, public speaking, whatever, in college, that you should also always return to the statement of your stake to come back to the point that you were making originally. And I kind of laid blame on those 16 unknowing girls. Listen, folks, I'm going to have to be real honest with you. And Emily, where are you? I don't say this to many people, and I told her, but I'm going to say it to you people so that you know. This is my therapy. This is what gets me through. I do this for selfish reasons. Or sometimes I think, I don't know. I just don't know. So it was easy for me to lay blame on those girls, but they were a convenience for me to get to air my grievances and my life that was forever changed as a result of the Buffalo Creek flood. Just like many of you. Folks, thank you. God bless you. I appreciate you. You've been listening to a memorial for the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo Creek Flood, which was held February 26, 2022 at Mann High School. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, from WMMT Mountain Community Radio.